first and second. Thank you, sir. Um, for those of you that don't know, again, that is Pastor Chase, our associate pastor. I am Pastor Justin. I am your lead pastor here at Glad Tidings Church. And we are just so thankful, as always, for what the Lord is doing in our church community and for how he's moving, he's leading, he's guiding. His spirit is at work in his sons and daughters. And I am thankful. I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for the fruit of the spirit that I see being born out. And I, as always, am excited for what the Lord is doing. Um, so today, we're going to embark on a journey through these two books of the New Testament. If you haven't read them before, they're rich. They have a lot to them. Uh, there's a lot of theology to them. We, as a church, uh, as, as the Lord has really equipped and developed me and, and shown me, uh, really try to make a very, very, very sincere effort to give you the Bible, to show you the Bible, to teach you the Bible, um, not simply, we, not simply, not at all to indoctrinate you, but to give it to you so that you can have it, you can understand it, and you can make a choice, because that's what it means to follow Jesus, to choose to follow him. But you need to understand who he is. You need to understand the character and the nature of who Jesus is, of who God is, and of who we are in God's story. And what our role is, what our part is, what our purpose is. And we believe as a church, I believe as a man, that there is no greater and there is no other way to find that out than through the Bible, through the word of God. So we always need to go to that word, understand it. Um, and I always do my best to ensure that I'm not up here giving you my opinion as gospel truth. Um, it's not always easy because uh, I got a lot of opinions. I'm very opinionated. Uh, but that being said, I, I, I really want you to know that I take it with a serious conviction. And so when we get to come to uh, walking through whole books of the Bible, I am so excited to do this. Because man, we just want to hear what the Bible has to say. What the Bible has to say. And we go through it week after week and it builds and builds and builds. Um, so that being said, week one of this journey together through Thessalonians, we're not going to quite get into the verse by verse yet. What we need to do when we come to books of the Bible is we need to take a, a really a bird's eye view and we need to understand the Bible so that when you hear it and when I preach it week after week or when you take it home and you dwell on it as I hope you do and maybe you go over your notes that you took or if you're online and you're listening to the sermon maybe later throughout the week, um, you can go back to this word week after week but because of today's focus, you're going to have a fuller understanding of the context, of the setting, of the city, of the time, of the politics, of Paul, the writer's uh, particular style of writing, why he writes the way that he does, so that when you read certain verses and phrases, you'll say, oh, I get it. That's why he used that phrase again and again and again and again. And then the word really comes alive to you. So I say all that to say um, today is definitely more of a teaching if there ever was truly a way that I could uh, exemplify and give a, a, an idea of what that word is, today is going to be a teaching. I'm probably still going to get passionate and spit all over the place because that's what I do. Um, but today, I'm just going to give you content heavy. So buckle up, get ready. Uh, there will still be points for you to follow. But when we come to the book of the Thessalonians, first and second, we have uh, a picture, an image of the, the founder of this church, the Apostle Paul, and how his first interactions in the city of Thessalonica went. Specifically, we read about that, that first scene of Paul's journey to Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. If you're taking notes, you can write that down in the first 13 verses, first nine verses, but I'm going to go to the 13 first. Um, and I'm going to read it for you. And I just want you to kind of track along with me, see the imagery of this. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and providing, proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. And here's what he said. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said to the Jews in the synagogue. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks 
and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men have caused trouble all over the world. Have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his they are all defying Caesar's decrees, underline that, highlight that, we're going to come back to that, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond or bail and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. You see Luke, the author, really taking a, a, a punt at the Jewish uh, insurrectionists at Thessalonica, saying that the Jews of Berea, they were more noble, they were just better people. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see what Paul see if what Paul said was true. Um, and as a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Sounds great so far, right? Why did I keep reading and go on to Berea? Verse 13. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was teaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. <laughs> These were some mean Jews, if I could put it bluntly. Um, and Luke is making that very clear. And they had a real issue with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to pray, and I just want to ask you in this moment, um, quiet yourself, quiet your heart, quiet your mind. If you can, with me, take both of your feet, place them on the ground firmly. If you want to do something with your hands, you can fold them, or you can just, as a sign and a posture of, of receptivity to God, put your hands like this. Nothing magical about it. It's just a moment to, to focus, seek the Lord, and just give yourself a few moments in your heart. work within us. Thank you that you are moving in miraculous ways. You are changing lives. Now, Lord, change our lives through this your word. Transform us in our thinking that we might live lives holy and pleasing to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So that first picture, if you guys can throw up on the screen. Uh, this is a picture of a map. It's the best one I can find. I'm going to come over here so you can look at these two things over here. Turn left over here. So right over here, we have the city of Thessalonica. This is over in the realm of Macedonia. Uh, and I just wanted you to see where Thessalonica was in relation to the city of Berea. So Paul just went a little bit south after he was rejected by the Thessalonian, the Jewish Thessalonians, um, proclaiming the gospel for some time in their Sabbaths. And right a little bit south of Berea is Mount Olympus. Do you guys, can, does anything uh, equate with Mount Olympus to you? You think Greek gods, right? You think, and I, I want you to understand they're in the heart of this Greek mythological understanding. While this pervaded much of the Roman Empire, it's huge here. This Greek culture was preserved here, uh, even though the Roman Empire overtook and kind of changed a little bit and adapted culture, it was still kind of, Greek mythologically pure in this area, especially with Mount Olympus being there. Um, you guys can leave that up for a few more moments. Uh, now, the church in Thessalonica was primarily Greek. While Paul went to the synagogues, as we saw on three consecutive Sabbaths, 
he was proclaiming the gospel to them, and it said, while some Jews believed, a large number of Greeks came to the faith, as well as prominent women. So many scholars believe, and as we'll go through Thessalonians in the weeks to come, you'll see Paul primarily understands that he's speaking to a church comprised of former Greeks or still Greek culture individuals, non-Jewish individuals. There were some Jews, but they were not receptive to the gospel as we just read in Acts 17, at least the majority of them. Um, So Paul's experience in this town while leaving the gospel and planning a church, hence the writing of the Thessalonians, uh, really also, in a sense, left a bad taste in his mouth when it came to his Jewish brethren, because Paul was a Jew by heritage. They literally ran him out of the city, and not only was that bad enough, but when he was in Berea carrying on the gospel, thinking, all right, I left those agitated individuals behind, they're coming after me, and they're following me, and they're interrupting the work that I'm trying to accomplish here. Um, The Thessalonians, though, as we're going to see in the weeks to come, also experienced a type of persecution similar to Paul's persecution. And the commonality was their faith in Jesus. But now think about it. While Paul experienced persecution from his fellow countrymen, the Jews, and while I'm sure the Jews were definitely still giving problems to the church in Thessalonica, there were the rest of the individuals within that community, within that town, the Greek speakers, the Greek descendants, that were also giving trouble to this church that we're going to read about. So while Paul experienced much persecution from his own countrymen, so also did the church experience much persecution from their countrymen. That, that's just one of those broad overarching themes that you need to understand that sets the table for us to understand why Paul is writing. Because persecution has continued even after Paul left. Things didn't settle down because the gospel was planted and seeds were flourishing and people were coming to know the Lord and that created tension. It created turmoil. And so Paul knows, he empathizes, he's been in the trenches of persecution the way that he is receiving reports of his fellow believers in Thessalonica are also experiencing. So that's one of the reasons that he is writing, and he's going to give a lot to that. We see that. I'm going to throw some verses at you throughout this sermon today, throughout the whole of at least 1 Thessalonians. Uh, If you jump to chapter 2, verse 14, it says this, For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. And Paul is being very specific about how they became imitators. It wasn't that they read the Bible or they studied the word like the Bereans. While that was probably a reality, he's not focusing on that. He's not focusing on how maybe in this moment hospitable they were, which they were. Paul is very specifically saying you became imitators of other believers in one specific way that he wanted to highlight. In this, you suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, the churches throughout Judea. Paul is saying, welcome to the club. Welcome to the family, not in a I told you so, but he's just saying, welcome. This is part and parcel of being a follower of Jesus. People are going to be against you. They're not going to like the the fragrance of Christ that comes and emanates from you. So again, that's just one particular snippet from this bird's eye view that you need to keep in mind as we go throughout Thessalonians and as you read it. Persecution is present. It's not forthcoming. It's not kind of in the wind. It is there. And the Thessalonians are experiencing it. Okay, so let's continue to go through the background. Um, Like I said before, even though this was a part technically of the Roman Empire, which was the superpower of the world, the known world at this time, the city of Thessalonica reserved its Greek heritage and its mythology and its many of its belief systems. But they were closely and tightly connected with the Roman Empire. They were a benefactor of the Roman Empire. Um, buckle up, here's a lot of, uh, a lot of information for you. Uh, the Roman Empire in particular decided when they were building the Roman roads throughout the Roman Empire, which was so innovative, something that had never been done before, trailblazing through the wilderness so that people can travel on the road, 
easily. Think about it today. When you have to take a bunch of back roads, that's more difficult than the main highway. Or think about it this way. If you've got to travel on a dirt road. Or think about it more this way. If you're trying to get a car through uncharted, unpaved, untrailed forestry, it's not going to work, right? The Roman Empire did something so profound in establishing the Roman roads, the routes through which people and convoys could travel with somewhat ease. Now, there was a particular road called the Via Ignatia. You guys can throw that picture up on the screen. This is a road that is still there today, and this is a picture of that road that connects the city of Thessalonica to the majority of the main nucleus of the Roman Empire. Now, once again, as you can imagine, the reason something like this was so significant was because it increased travel, people being able to go and live in Thessalonica, commerce and trade. Now, it wasn't just by sea, but it was by land as well. This allowed Thessalonica to be able to really be a thriving part of the economy of the Roman Empire. So, that means Thessalonica was... According to biblical scholars, we understand from archaeological findings and and different writings that were found, extremely cosmopolitan. Think big city. Don't, it's kind of like Corinth, and I've said to you many times when you think Corinth, you think New York or partially like a, like maybe a Vegas with the fun, but New York, well, Thessalonica was in the realm of that, um, Specifically, we, this is fascinating, we know that the city of Thessalonica ranged in population somewhere between 65 to 80,000 people. Now I want you, just for a little bit of context, if you pull up your phones, you don't have to, but you pull up your phones and you type in population of residents in Asbury Park. It's a little bit over 15,000. I was not expecting that. I was expecting there to be much more in the 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 time and the place and the era that we live in, whereas in the ancient Near Eastern world, I wasn't expecting there to be that much population that manner. So I want you to think about a city, not not a territory, not Monmouth County, but a city with 60 to 80,000 people within it. And then it says on the outskirts, outside of the city walls, so not far, not a whole county, but still within the city limits outside of the wall, scholars think that there was probably around 100,000 people. That is a lot of people condensed into one city. It is. Now, this tells you a little something about Paul's mode of operation, about where he likes to carry the gospel. Paul, while it's not unimportant, doesn't focus on going to, you know, kind of the... suburban places, the comfortable places, the country places. Well, that's important, and there are populations and areas in our country that are like that, certainly, and that need to hear the gospel. Paul recognized that the most effective way for me to be able to spread the gospel is to, listen to me, go to where the people are. Go to where the people are. And that's just a point that I want you to understand, again, from this bird's eye view. When it comes to sharing the gospel, if we take a lesson out of Paul's book about how he gospel and evangelized the world, he went to where the people were. He didn't wait for them to come to him. He didn't go to the comfortable places. He went to the packed, tight, economically wealthy, uncomfortable, you know, pagan places, and he shared the gospel with people without discrimination. Now, let me continue to tell you a little bit more about this city of Thessalonica. Uh, The city of Thessalonica was made a free city by one of uh, the generals who became an emperor of the Roman Empire early on. Um, And this provided several important consequences, positive consequences for the city of Thessalonica. Number one, because they were made a free city by the Roman Empire, it meant that the city was given a level of local autonomy, freedom from certain Roman Empire legislation. So within the Roman Empire, you follow their laws. So you know we have kind of like a state division from our federalized government, and every once in a while the federal government will put out a law that every state has to follow with, but they use it very sparingly, we like to think. Roman Empire in this one oligarchy, somewhat republic, but then monarchy. No, if the Roman Empire says it, you do it. If the emperor decrees it, you follow it. But in Thessalonica, they were kind of given a, a special status. 
And they were given the freedom to be able to say, you know what, we're, we're going to develop our own sets of laws, kind of like at a state level, and we're going to allow our people to live in those laws. And the Roman Empire, because the Roman Empire thrived off of the commerce and the trade and the economy of the Thessalonian culture, said, cool, keep doing your thing, because you're helping us, so we'll help you out. So it gave them a level of freedom that they didn't have to follow through strict Roman laws, which include certain tax privileges, taxation, where if you lived in Thessalonica, you didn't have to pay a whole bunch of taxes. Huh, I wonder why there was a whole lot of high population in the city of Thessalonians. To my New Jerseyans who have family that have moved to Virginia or South Carolina or Idaho, or you're thinking about moving there, this is like an ancient comparison between it. That's one of the reasons you would have a lot of people going to Thessalonica, because it was going to be, in a sense, cheaper, at least when it came to taxes, you can assume. Third, it meant that the city was not a Roman colony. There's a lot of implications to what this means. But let me just focus on one in particular. It means that Roman soldiers, both currently actively serving or those that are discharged but were still given a special veteran status, they were not housed in this area or stationed in this area. And if you know anything about what it was to be a Roman soldier amongst a populace that, especially if they weren't Roman citizens, implied it meant that you did whatever those Roman soldiers said. If you had a Roman soldier knock on your door and you open that door and they say, I'm coming in, you're going to give us all the food in your pantry so that we can have supplies that we need or you're going to cook us a meal right now, you did it. If a Roman soldier decided to get frisky with your wife or if you were a single lady, technically they weren't allowed to, but they were going to get a pass and everybody knew it so you didn't bring it up. Otherwise, they would probably try to hush you so that that bad vibe wouldn't go out about Roman soldiers. There was an unbelievable amount of abuse that the Roman soldiers, as a part of the Roman Empire and the Roman army and the Roman government, were afforded the privilege to be able to abuse at the expense of the people. Thessalonica didn't have soldiers housed there, neither actively serving or retired. So again, you can understand why this place was densely populated and a lot of people like to go there and a lot of people like to live there. And when you live in a place that has all of these freedoms, let me ask you, do you want those freedoms taken away? No. You want to keep living in those freedoms. You want to keep it safe. That's why you moved there in the first place. So keep all that other stuff out. We don't want any of that here. Let's keep our law. Let's keep our peace. Let's keep everything that we got going in our favor going smoothly. This is the setting and the culture of the city of Thessalonica that Paul is introduced to and that Paul introduces the gospel to. Okay. So as far as it concerns the rest of the known world ruled by the Roman Empire, the politics, the economy, the culture at Thessalonica was good. It was smooth. Life was good. Now, Stay with me. I'm going to jump now, continuing to give you an understanding of the culture of the city to the concept of emperor cult worship. This is really important. This is really, really important. Because if you have this incredible superpower, the Roman Empire, that the Thessalonians are given special exemptions not to have to follow every law and tax law and, and all that, there was definitely a give and take, and one of the primary ways, other than the economic prosperity that the Thessalonians provided to the Roman Empire, was how they made sure that they always gave highest honor to the emperor, who was considered in this culture a deity, not just a king, but a god in the flesh. And in particular, what archaeologists found was that there was a statue, you guys can throw, throw that picture of the statue up, of the Emperor Augustus, um, this is one of the first emperors of the Roman Empire that at this point in time is not the emperor. He's deceased. He's dead. But in homage of him, they would have something very similar to this in their town. And there was a temple erected in his honor where there was emperor cult worship, where literally they would go and they would make sacrifice to. They would worship. They would pray to this now deceased man who is a god in their eyes. And by extension, they would also pay special homage to the 
present emperor at the time, giving him a status of divine authority. But it, it wasn't quite as divine until you would defeat and you were considered a part of the stars in the heaven. Then you would truly embody your divinity and your godhood. But this was one of the ways that the city continued to stay in the graces and honestly really believed because it was so ingrained in their cultural heritage and their mythology. They enacted emperor cult worship. So let me just tell you a little bit more about this. Guys, uh, throw that picture of the coin up on the screen. So in this picture, you have likely that's supposed to be one of the uh, present Caesars of the time, not Augustus. But on the back, and, and that's the face. And on the back side, you have in this particular imagery, uh, the goddess Nike. Anybody wear Nike? Okay, you didn't realize I was rooted in Greek mythology. I got Nike. It's cool. Um, the goddess Nike, who was a great god, is holding the Kyberos, which was considered one of the most holy and sacred gods, who was a smith in Greek mythology. She's holding that god, and what I just want you to understand from this picture is, okay, on this backside, the coin is representing one of the most powerful divine faces that their mythological beliefs would worship, right? But on the front side, which means equal to, you have the face of the emperor. So the coin, the economy even represents how sincerely the Thessalonians held the emperor of Rome in the highest possible regard of worship. He wasn't second to, he was equal with all of the gods. In fact, he's the god who's living now, so we better pay him the highest. There is no god like Caesar. This is a part of their culture. So now, in light of this, I want you to throw up a picture, the next picture, guys. It's that picture of Paul preaching, likely. We don't know for sure, but it's not actually. It's a drawing. But just imagine that's Paul, right? You understand the city. You understand the setting. You understand the culture. And now you have this kind of raggedy, tattered, somewhat nomadic dude come walking in on the Via Ignatia. Uh, another new face in the sea of faces of people that are flocking to this haven, this economic haven, this political haven, who just wants to get in on some of the good life. And he gets up in the Sabbath, in the Jewish synagogue, on three consecutive Sabbaths. And he says this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. This is a part of what he says. They themselves report what kind of reception you gave us they tell how you the thessalonians turn to god from idols to serve the living and true god this is paul writing to the thessalonians after he had preached go back to that picture so paul amongst jews greeks prominent women people of the city gives a message about jesus christ the true, implying that there are false gods, the true and only God who is alive. Not some dead as a doormat God. Think about the cultural implications of what Paul just did. A Jew comes into a Jewish synagogue, and this Jewish synagogue, you better believe, is appreciating the privileges that they've been afforded by their community in Thessalonica, both economic and political. And they are certainly, while monotheistic and worship the one true God, we know historically that they went off track within the Roman Empire and they got in the Roman Empire's pocket and the Roman Empire in their pocket. And they kind of had this unspoken agreement, like you can worship your gods, we'll worship our God and we'll kind of keep the peace. But you had Christians that came and said, uh-uh. We're, we're not going to accept any polytheistic worship. We don't worship any God but the God. And so while the Jews are saying, yeah, we worship Yahweh, the same God, they're saying, no, no, that Jesus, 
is God incarnate, the fulfillment of that Old Testament. And now we don't rub shoulders. Well, like we can live in peace with them, but we're not going to follow their mythological, their prescribed standards of worship. And, and we're not going, we can coexist, but not at the expense of living for God. And living for Jesus means he is the way, the truth, and the life. And Paul comes in and he starts sharing this message. Do you think that he caused trouble? Do you see maybe why the Jews in Acts 17 had a real problem with this man coming and talking about Jesus? Paul really disrupted their comfort, really disrupted their way of life by coming in and spouting to them this egregious, life-earth-shattering, in a bad way, knowledge. Let me just give you a little bit more. This, to help you understand the culture of what the, 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 the particular leaders of the city of Thessalonica committed in their em emperor cultic worship. This was something that people needed to understand, memorize, take a vow, a commitment to, that they would train their, their families, their children, everybody without reservation needed to commit this philosophy, this belief. This needed to be a value that was a part of their DNA. That was inseparable. It was paramount. It was more important than even their faith, than their ethnicity, than their economic status. This was everything. And this is something that was found, again, in archaeological findings and manuscript form. This was a vow that was said by Thessalonians, enforced by the leaders of the government of Thessalonica. I swear that I will support Caesar Augustus, his children, and descendants throughout my life and will be unaffected. That in whatsoever concerns them, I will spare neither body, nor soul, nor life, nor children. That whenever I see or hear anything being said, planned, or done against them, I will report it. And whomsoever they regard as enemies, I will attack and pursue with arms and the sword by land and by sea. It's, it's one thing to be thankful for freedom, but it's another thing to blindly, blindly commit not just your life, but the life of your family under threat of death that you would enact on your family or anybody else in order to honor the emperor and all that he stood for was God. This is very deep, very deeply entrenched and ingrained within the DNA of this people. And now Paul comes in saying they're learning the true alive God and his name is Jesus. And that demands What that vow is that Thessalonians followed, that demands action. Drive him out. Just get him out of here. Oh, we see a word of him in Berea. He's not. No, we need to snuff him out. That's why Paul had to leave in the dead of night. Because it wasn't just get out of here. It was, we're going to kill you. You are disturbing the order of tranquility, peace, and goodness that we have here. Much of the world doesn't have. And we see how this is the setting that Paul preached the gospel in. So we can understand why some of the Jews would immediately be alarmed and why they would go out into the marketplace and get men of ill repute, bad character, people who were even more so about themselves. And they would get them and form the mob and, and really remove any form of Jesus from their presence. So here's really kind of an overarching point that I want you to understand so far from this bird's eye view. Paul is writing to a people who have experienced so much false security because of their attachment and dependence on a worldly system. Now let's be real. It's not false technically because they got some serious security. 
but it's false. Because, man, what are they getting up in order to experience this comfort and this security? It's false. It's false. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3, Paul says this in a rebuking manner, and we'll get there in the weeks to come. While, Paul, while people are saying, and Paul quotes what people are saying in the community he's addressing with, peace and safety. Destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. When people are saying, don't worry, and don't focus on Jesus and the gospel and all that, and no, 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 don't, don't, don't worry about anything. Don't, don't worry about working, which we're going to get to in a minute. Don't worry about having proper adherence and holiness and, and a set-apart life for God, even within the church. Don't worry about that. Peace and safety. Because what did they have in the city of Thessalonica? Peace and safety. And so they were relinquishing a lot of their responsibilities. They were foregoing, partaking of a lot of regular, necessary responsibilities of life. And Paul says, "Uh uh-uh. That's not how we live as men and women of God. We don't rest in the security of this world. We live for another world, which demands action which demands a life lived appropriately. So the conclusion, and I'm not done with this sermon, uh, the conclusion, the city of Thessalonica was syncretistic, worshiped many gods, preserving the Greek culture and their mythology. And Caesar, at the top, even the people behind closed doors were like, man, you, you should have Roman worshiped that, you know, and all that. No, especially in public, Caesar. He's the one that makes the world go round gives us this comfort that we have. Um, Pagan norms were not welcome in Christian culture. Established Jewish culture was also unfavorable to the Christian faith because of this message of Jesus. Paul had trouble. The Thessalonians similarly had trouble even after his departure. There was much reason for Christians to face constant opposition in this city. This is why Paul and Silas were chased out, and this is why Paul writes a letter to these believers, because they are facing persecution because of the climate of this city. A city that's supposed to be so peaceful, so comfortable, so life-giving, so good, is a city of chaos for a Christian. Persecution rather than rest. That's really the overarching view, number one. The next one that I want to focus on has to do with the style of Paul's writing. And I know it sounds really boring. Um, I promise if you just stay with me, it'll be worth it. I know you didn't want to come to school today, but I'm telling you, it's going to be so worth it for you. So this is where we talk about literary context or literary style. Um, And I'm telling you, this is also going to cue in on this whole topic of persecution as well. So in a Greek setting, but also the, the world setting at large, but it, it originated with uh, Greek culture, Greek philosophy, Greek rhetoric or ways of speaking. Uh, there was a particular display or form of rhetoric, rhetoric called epideictic rhetoric. Epideictic rhetoric. Epideictic rhetoric is primarily about giving testimony and appreciation. So when I stand up and I'm, this is rhetoric right now. I'm presenting a speech in a sense to you right now. Epideictic rhetoric was getting up and giving testimony, praise, admonition of something great. Not argumentation, not proof. So in other words, when somebody gives, gave an epideictic speech, it, speech or rhetoric, it was not about trying to convince you philosophically why you should believe scientifically why you should believe theologically why you should believe it wasn't it was just extreme praise it was yes wow be reminded of this bring this to your attention or in the negative remember that blame is deserving here the 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 chaos and the evil of this situation be reminded of it can that lead to proofs that convince individuals absolutely but again the intent of this type of rhetoric was simply to extol, to lift up, or to magnify something, not to prove something. Okay, that's important because when you read through Thessalonians, especially 1 Thessalonians, this is the type of rhetoric that Paul chooses to use in his writing. Why does that matter? Let me tell you. Thanks for asking. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says this. This is the thesis, really, of 1 Thessalonians. This is the idea behind all of Paul's writing, and it shows Epidychus' letter. We remember, before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor, labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. What was the second word in that verse? Remember. We remember. Paul is saying, me, Silas, Timothy, all of us, those of us that were with you when we were there, we remember your appropriate response to the gospel. We're reminded of that. And Paul, by extension, in writing this, is reminding them of that. And he uses very descriptive qualities in his phrasing. What did we remember? That was an incredible, praiseworthy trait that we want to magnify about you and the way that you responded to the gospel. Met your labor prompted by love. Your work that came from a well of love. Uh, excuse me. And your work produced by faith. And your endurance sticking to it. Inspired by hope. In the Lord Jesus Christ and his promise, his inevitable, imminent return. This is vivid. There is imagery in this that Paul is specifically using in this form of rhetoric so that when his readers hear this letter that's been written to them aloud, being read, they say, yes, thank you for that reminder, Paul. Because, man, this week's been hard. Oh, it's been hard, man. What, what I've been going through. And, and what my boss or this politician or I was in prison this last week or they took this from me all because of the fact that I keep living for Jesus. So thank you. I needed to hear that. I needed to hear that. This is the style that Paul adopts, according to many scholars in Thessalonians. And honestly, I see it clearly. And, and when I was studying this, I was like, yeah, and I'm going to show you a little bit more about why this is the case. Um. Again, this, this type of rhetoric is supposed to evoke high emotion. And so the author or the speaker, the order, uses highly emotional language. He loves to use metaphor. He uses a broad spectrum of, extreme, of extremes of hyperbole to emphasize the point, to really make it abundantly picturesque that when you hear it, you're like, oh, I, I can kind of see it in my mind. So if we jump to chapter 5, it's not going to be up on the screen, I don't think. But in chapter 5, we have these famous verses. You know where you love to, quote, pray without ceasing and pray continually? That's here. But let me read for you verses 16 to 22. And watch this. Paul says, rejoice always. How, how do you rejoice always? Right? If I just say rejoice, okay, you have, you have that idea of rejoicing. But when I say rejoice always, you're like, yeah, let me go and wake up when I go to sleep. It almost, it's almost ridiculous. Like, how do I rejoice always? Right? Because I get bad days too. Rejoice always. It's picturesque. Pray continually. What about when I'm eating food? Or what about when I'm asleep? How does that work? Like, what about when I'm talking or playing with my kids? It's, it's trying to be abundantly clear, picturesque. Man, I just pray even when I'm feeling low. It's coming alive in the mind. Give thanks in all circumstances. Man, even when life sucks and I'm being persecuted and things are hard, give thanks in all circumstances for this is god's will for you in christ jesus don't quench the spirit very vivid imagery the idea of quenching here is when you take a hot iron that a blacksmith would take that he, that metal that he's trying to form and 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 shape but then you put it in the water and it juices it so it can't be formed anymore he's saying don't don't allow yourselves to be quenched and therefore quench the spirit because of certain ideologies or pictures because then you're not going to be formed your spirit won't be able to don't treat prophecies with contempt. Don't be so disgusted when you hear somebody giving a prophecy. Maybe it's not for you. Maybe it is wrong. Don't treat them with contempt. Test that. That's the proper answer to it. Uh, all of them, not just some, all of them. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. You hear these extremes that are being tacked on. Instead of just rejoice, pray, be thankful, um, trust the spirit. Um, prophecies, they're good. Don't think they're bad. Um, you know, we, we should probably hold on to good things and good words. And, um, you know, when evil comes along, reject it. 
see the difference? You getting it? You seeing it? This is a part of Paul's literary style. He wants the word to come alive to his readers. Um, now, what's fascinating, again, that I, I kind of mentioned uh, uh, in brief, if, if you caught it, Paul specifically gives the command, make sure this is read aloud. There, it's not that other letters weren't read aloud, likely they were, but here we see a very specific command by Paul, make sure that when you read this in the presence of believers, it's done aloud. Do it out loud, because I want you to see it and hear it. He says it in 527, I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters, implying aloud when you gather together. Man, let him hear it. That's why I'm writing it this way. I want it to bring encouragement and admonishment and exhortation. This is Paul's desire. Encouragement to hold on to the good they have already grasped, Jesus and that way of life, and then to avoid legalism. And, and, and we'll see that um, in the weeks to come. Paul's intent in this form of communication is simply this, if I could paraphrase it, you're being called. Keep it. Keep it up. Different than the letter to the Galatians. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You dummy, kicks them in the butt because they're living so wrong. You're doing good because I want you to keep it up. Don't grow weary in doing good. Keep striving to live in this calling that the Lord made you worthy to live in. Um, now, just one quick side note that is super Bible geeky and nerdy that I just want to point out to you. Um, we need to, we, when we are confronted with this form of rhetoric that Paul clearly uses, that was a, a, a common Greek form of rhetoric in the ancient Near Eastern world, uh, we need to be careful that we don't overapply the scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, wherein Paul says something to the form of, um, you know, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquent speech or fancy words, but I came with Jesus and a power, a power, a, a, the spirit and the power and the demonstration of it. And we, we read that and we say, you don't need to worry about what you say. Just be filled with the spirit and show the future. That was very contextual because you had the Corinthians who were abundant in the gift. And Paul saying, so am I. And let me show you how I live. Vastly different from you so-called spirit-filled individuals. Here, that's not the problem. And so Paul doesn't say, well, I'm not going to use fancy speech because that's unchristian. Epideictic rhetoric is extremely well thought out, extremely visual, extremely literate. And he uses it. So I just share that as a side note, not, not to belittle or to take light of people that can be very thoughtful in the way that they maybe share the gospel, maybe the way that they talk about Jesus. Maybe if they're a little bit more reserved and quiet and they, and, and they like to think quietly, if they're not extremely ecstatic and charismatic. Maybe they don't talk like me. Maybe they talk vastly different from me. That's okay. There's not one size fits all for there. It's knowing the setting and knowing the context. Paul used both. I just want to share that because I've heard that throughout all of my life growing up in a Pentecostal church. And I am charismatic, as you can tell. And I can be very charismatic depending on the content that we talk about. Throughout this discourse, as we're going to see in the weeks to come, the audience, the believers in Thessalonica are being asked to learn, to remember. Not really to change their conduct. I need you to remember that. There's really no rebuke here. Paul does give a little bit of like forewarning to things that could become a problem, but because he knows it's a part of the culture, not because he's received testimony that, oh my gosh, what are you guys doing? That does come a little bit more in 2 Thessalonians, a little bit but not really in 1 Thessalonians. Why would Paul use such vivid rhetoric in order to remind the Thessalonians of their incredible faith? Here's the point. Keep coming back to the truth of Jesus. When you are living with difficulty right now, I have heard it, I've heard the reports, they're going to see Paul and these church vigils so anxious but because they've been expelled from the city and they know it's going to probably be more problematic and likely they were barred from entering the city illegally, as what many scholars believe, it's like we've been so restless, we just stopped what we were doing in our next town of ministry. We can't seem to be bothered. He's like, man, we were so worried because we know that you're going through what we went through and you live there. 
while we were able to escape, you're living in it every single day. What does that do for your presence? Man, what does that mean for us? I just say this applicably today, that when we go throughout these next couple of weeks, understand that if you're facing persecution, God's going to have many words for you. He's going to have many words for you from this text. So lean in, incline your ear, listen up. If you've been saying, God, I need you to help me through this time of life because it is getting difficult, lean in. Because there's going to be a word for you. Hopefully that word of encouragement is that. And understand, God is going to speak to the pain that you're experiencing in your life, to the persecution you're experiencing in your life. So start there. So let me kind of recap and give a little bit, a little bit of a recap and a little bit of new as I come to the last portion of my message for you. Number one, security comes from God, not the government. It comes from God, not the government, not any man-made human institution, not any person, not anything. It comes from God and God alone. And Paul is just, hey, Thessalonians, you get that, you know that, keep trusting that. Be reminded of that. Live in that. Even though you are living in this political, economic haven compared to the rest of the Roman Empire, even though you move to one of the Carolinas or the Virginias or out west, you know, to a place, that's not your security. That is not your security. In fact, when you live for the Lord in places like that, it's going to cause you to probably stir some things up that are going to make people mad at you. Be reminded God is your security, God is your comfort, God is your help, not a government. Number two, and this is new, and I'm going to read a bunch of scriptures for you, and I just hope, again, in true form of epideictic rhetoric, we're going to have six truthful thoughts. Living for God is hard. Living for God is hard work. I told you last week when we talked about Sabbath, ceasing from work and resting in God, that it is necessary in order for us to work appropriately, work in all things to glorify God. In fact, Sabbath, again, cannot be the end of the week. We need to really look at it as, wow, the end of the week, it's the start. It's what prepares us. Because if you try to go into this world and work, man, you all know it is so hard to keep God at the forefront. That's why we got to keep coming back in Sabbath and be reminded and be blessed because we don't rest from work. We rest in order to work. That's that idea of Sabbath there. And what's fascinating is I didn't even realize this until I really dove into the final bit of my study in preparation for this sermon series. Thessalonians, I would dare say, is primarily about work. We love to quote, if you've ever heard in 2 Thessalonians, those who shall not work shall not eat. And Paul even has a little bit to mention here in 1 Thessalonians about work. But we isolate it. And we think, okay, that's just one small part because maybe there was a little bit of an issue with people being lazy and not working and they need to work. And it was based on their misinterpretation of the return of Christ. He's coming back any day so I can quit my job. I can, you know, do whatever fun things I want to get in last minute because he's coming back any day. So, hey, free for all. That's likely there. But this is actually a theme throughout the entirety of the book of work. And let me just show you based on the rhetoric that Paul uses understand this by the way too this is a city that is unlike athens if you go back to acts athens is filled with philosophy it's it's a city where there are while this was highly pagan and mythological athens was like we had all the universities and the different temples that taught you how to worship those gods and appropriately live out this philosophical lifestyle it was the educational hub the maybe the harvard-esque area of the ancient Near Eastern world. That's not what Thessalonians is. It's a haven where there's a lot of just hard workers. You have sailors, you have artisans, you have leather workers, you have uh, tent makers. Y- you have just blue collar people. You have higher class and people that are on the lower end of the spectrum of economic wealth. But these are workers, average Joes, essentially based on their profession. That's important to remember because Paul is dealing a lot with work and heavy work. So let me just start reading to you some of the scriptures, and I want you to think of the theme of work, of labor. First Thessalonians 1, 2, we already read it. Let me read it for you again. The thesis that Paul praises 
the Thessalonians 4, we remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith. What did faith lead to? Work. Your labor prompted by love. What did love evoke the Thessalonians to do? Labor. And your endurance inspired by hope. What do you need when you're working long hours? Jump to chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Instead, we were like young children among you, just as a nursing mother cares for her children. Moms that have kids, you all know, when you are nursing and raising your newborn baby or your child, what is it? Work. It's hard work. Work I can't even imagine. It's hard work. And Paul's saying, that's what our labor amongst you was like. He's saying, we worked. And he's going to go on and on and say, I'm proud of you because you're imitating us. You're imitating us. You're imitating our work. Keep going. Chapter 2, verse 9. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone else while we preached the gospel of God to you. Chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it as a human word, but as it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe the word of God is working in you. Chapter three, verse five. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. Chapter 3, verse 10. Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Night and day, always. That's a work. We're praying constantly, man. And we're tired in order that we might supply, give you, provision you. That's work. Chapter 3, verse 12, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. Now, this is where I am going to give a little bit of commentary. May the Lord make your love increase, abound, overflow. Uh, this is one more thing that I want you to understand, that as we go through the book of Thessalonians, I believe the concept of love here has a very specific understanding in Paul's mind. We know love in the Greek language can be unconditional, brotherly. We talk about the love that we as a church ought to have. It's very diverse. There's many characteristics that we all get from the Bible. And here's one very unique characteristic that I believe Paul is discussing here. If we go back to verse 3, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, again, we remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love. So the characteristic of love in this context is labor for one another. Working for one another, working because God worked for us, working because Paul set the tone and showed them how to work and how to labor. So love exercised here is work, a love that works, a love that functions, that exercises itself. On that same note, coming back to chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, it says this. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make your ambition. What do we have ambition to do? We have dreams and aspirations that usually have to do with our work, with our dreams, why we go to school or why we develop a trade or what we are entrepreneurial about. It's ambitious. Do that more and more and make that ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. I don't want to get ahead of myself. That's going to be a message that we preach when we get there. But there were these individuals within the church that had a bad theology of work, probably because of their bad theology of when Christ's return would come. So they're living off of the welfare of others, literally within the church. They're saying, hey, you got money. Come on, give more, give more, give more, give more. Christ come back any day, so I don't need to work, but you got plenty. So if you're a real Christian, you'll bless me. Paul's saying, uh-uh. No, that's not how it works. Pun not intended. Um, it's not. Work with your hands because you've got a witness to carry to the rest of the world. And when the world sees you living off of the welfare of others and, and siphoning off of them and taking advantage of them and saying, yeah, if you're a, a lover of God, then you're going to love me by giving me all that you got. That's not what the world needs to see because that is not the love of Christ because Christ worked for us. 
chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admire you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, lazy, don't work, don't labor, and disruptive. The inevitable fruit of somebody who's not working is they're going to be divisive because they got nothing else to do with their time. Encourage the to start and helping the weak. Be patient with everyone. If we don't develop a biblical perspective of work, here is what Thessalonians, I hope, will teach us and much more in the weeks to come. Here's what can happen if we don't develop a rich understanding of a biblical idea of work. We become lazy. We get bored and snoop in others' business. We expect others to pay for our way of life. We develop horrible theology on God, on when he's coming back, on how he's coming back. And ultimately, it's going to affect how we live holy lives, set apart lives, lives that are to be distinct from the rest of the world in a good way. We'll, we're we're going to learn that our faith becomes self-centered rather than community-centered if we have a poor biblical understanding of work. Our work can become our God rather, uh, rather than a means to serve God. Again, let me say that our work can become our God rather than a means to serve God. If we have an improper understanding or a proper biblical understanding of the word work, it becomes God rather than a means to serve God. Finally, we develop a false sense of security in the wrong people and in the wrong institutions. Because your work is for the glory of God not self, not others, and don't trust in that paycheck to give you life and sustenance because unfortunately that's going to come up short at some point if it hasn't already. So need it, you got to work. So do you see the diversity here? Now I'm not saying that this book is all about work, but oh my gosh, I'm telling you, you are going to see time and time again more than the scriptures that I just read to you. There's so much that has to do with work, work, labor, labor, and every time you see the word love, think functional, working, laboring love. Not laborious, like, oh, this is horrible. But no, I'm working for you because God is working for me. And let's work for each other so that we can show the world God at work in us, which finally is the last bird's eye perspective that I want you to understand as we head into this, this series on Thessalonians. And that's this, God is working for us. Not only has God worked for you, but God is presently working for you, in you, and through you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4-5 through five say this, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. Brothers and sisters, loved by God. If God loves you, He's working for you. Not working for you like he's under you and he's one of your employees. But he's working for you, for your benefit. Because he loves you. And that's the proof of his love for you. He's working for you. To give you life when persecution surrounds you. To give you hope if you're not living in a haven like Thessalonica. Where everybody's got tax relief. or, Or certain laws that they don't have to follow. God is at work for you. God is your security. God is your comfort. I pray, I really pray that this will be on your heart as we go through this book. Would you stand with me? And just just on that last note of God working with us as we close, last week I also talked to you briefly about that Hebrew Old Testament concept of chesed. It's this idea of loyalty given, loyalty shown. Well, we got we to gotta stop overanalyzing or overinterpreting and overimplying unconditional love. Because we overapplied it. It's like unconditional love, therefore I got freedom to live however I want. It's not unconditional love. God freely gives you new life, but now he says live in it. He says live holy lives, holy set apart. So you need to be set apart from that previous life that I freely without condition brought you out of but you want to live in it you got some work to do you got a life to live so stop going back to it and saying thank you god grace of god covers me good to go no yeah no 
Again, he's at work for you, but you, you see how that manipulates it and mistreats it. He worked. He worked hard for you on the cross, and he's working hard for you now. So, man, let's work for each other, bringing glory to God, showing the world our love for each other, our love for God by our love for each other. Remember that relationship. Don't take it for granted. Man, I'm excited. I'm really excited to go on this journey with you through First and Second Thessalonians. Are you feeling good about this? You all feel ready to go through this in the weeks to come? All right, hey, let me pray for you, and then I'll send you on your way, okay? Father, thank you for a day together as the body of Christ on this holy Sabbath where we're resting in you. We're receiving guidance. We're receiving help and hope and understanding. Father, now I pray that what we've learned today as, as a family, we would really commit it to heart and mind. And Father, it would help us to understand and interpret and apply to our lives your holy word in the books of First and Second Thessalonians. I pray that it would radically, radically inform and then transform our lives. Father, would we allow it to inform us? Would we allow it into our thinking, our normal way of life, our philosophies, our theologies that maybe are off? Would we allow the word to inform all of who we are? Would we be confronted when maybe some of those things are off and they're wrong? And then, Lord, would we be so admonished and encouraged when we're informed and we realize, man, we are on track. And so let's keep it going. Father, let this word inform us in the weeks to come so that we will ultimately be transformed when we act on it, when we live in it. Thank you for it, Jesus. Father, I thank you for your people. I thank you for new life, holy life that you have provided the means for us to live. We worship you, we praise you, and in Jesus' name, the people of God said...